Morning, everybody. I hope you don't mind, but I like to walk around. It's not because I'm nervous. Every time I speak for the first time, they think you walk around like a lion. And so I'm going to move around a little bit. This morning, our topic is on the eve of the Reformation, as Matthew was talking about. We have lots of topics to cover over the next few weeks, and I get to start it off with this, which I'm excited about. I want to give you a little introduction to myself. Matthew gave a little about who I am professionally. I'll start off, as he mentioned, I'm a professor at Biblical Seminary. I've been there for 10 years, which is hard to believe, but I teach world Christian history and world religions. As Matthew mentioned, I've written lots of books. This is one of my favorite books, Christianity and World Religions, so I love to teach about Islam and about Buddhism, as well as all the different varieties of Christianity. A tour guide... I lead groups, students, as well as churches around the world. I love going to Muslim countries. Just came back recently from a couple of areas where we have good times of interaction, learning. Came back just two weeks ago from Israel and Palestine, which is a place that I take students to pretty regularly. Former pastor, actually used to work at a Baptist church. Maybe that's worth something. But I don't anymore, so maybe that's worth something more. <laughs> Sixth generation Texan. So my uh, family's been living in, uh, in Texas before it was actually Texas. And then most importantly, I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> and that pretty much sums up everything you need to know about me. Again, most importantly, Dallas Cowboys fan. Mm-hmm. So... And I'm brave. <laughs> so let's talk about Europe in the year 1500. If we can go back more than 500 years ago. And here is a map for us to think about. And this is the time period that I've chosen. When I say on the eve of the Reformation, what does that mean exactly? Well, for the most part, I'm going to be talking about things that are taking place around 500 years ago. We might go back as late as the 1300s to a few places and a little after that, perhaps. But if we look at this map here, at Europe in the year 1500, and we notice, first of all, we're in Europe. The country that we're in right now doesn't exist in the same way it does in people's imagination, certainly as it does 500 years ago. You can look to the right, and you can see some of these great empires, which, for the most part, no longer exist. We can start all the way over here at the Ottoman Empire which encompasses Turkey as well as some other Eastern European countries. We have Hungary on the top, and we've got Austria there. And then in the yellow, in the central part of Europe, is the Holy Roman Empire. And for practical purposes, we can think about this is the Germanic lands, Germanic type of leadership. In a lot of ways, it's inheriting part of the Roman Empire, And then if we go left, we see France, and then on top of that, England. And we can think throughout the late medieval period, which is the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, England and France are constantly at war, battling over any number of issues that come up. And then we go down south, we see Spain and Portugal. And each of these areas 
has a different religious alliance, different political affiliations, different things are taking place. And if we go down to the very bottom there, we have what's called the Papal States, the Kingdom of Naples, and we've got this Venetian Republic. And it's hard for us to think about, but 500 years ago, there's no such thing as Germany, there's no such thing as Italy. Even France and England don't have the same identity as we think about them today. So they're not modern nations in that sense. They're becoming modern nations at this time. But when it comes to what we understand now to be Italy, we see the Papal States. It's hard for people to understand that the Papal States actually is a land that's ruled by the Pope. Today, if you go to the Vatican, it's very small. It's like a square, uh, square mile and the Pope lives there as well as the, the infrastructure of the Catholic Church, but it's part, I mean, basically you have to go through, there's no passport check going from Italy into the Vatican. The, the Pope is not in charge of a military like he was with the Papal States. So this is the map that we're going to be thinking about this week and even in the weeks to come. As I mentioned, we've got some religious empires, if we want to use that language, And first is the Eastern Orthodox set of countries or areas. This is mostly Eastern Europe, as well as what we call the Holy Land or the Middle East today. There's a lot of similarities with Catholicism. Then we have Sunni Islam, which represents the Ottoman Empire, different from some of the other forms of Islam. But Sunni Islam throughout Eastern Europe, And then finally, Roman Catholicism. And what we have to understand about Christianity on the eve of the Reformation is that we're talking only about Catholicism. In the background, we have Eastern Orthodoxy and we have Sunni Islam, but it is out of Catholicism that all the varieties of Protestantism come. Isn't this a beautiful picture? So picturesque. What do you see? A wall. It's a walled city. And when we think about the Middle Ages and we think about Europe, many of the cities were walled cities. There were fortifications. They were protecting themselves. And if you go to medieval cities today in Europe, you'll still see a lot of them that have these walled cities. So that's one. And what does it mean, though, to be walled? Why are you walled off? Yeah, as I mentioned, it's fortification, so you're protecting yourself. What else do you see? A church on the hill. A church on the hill. Mm-hmm. And the church on the hill really is dominating the landscape. And here, size does matter. You've got the large structures are the structures that are the most important, the most significant for the town. Also notice the central location. Anything else? Exclusion? Yeah, and who are being excluded or what is being excluded? Mm -hmm. Peasants. Certainly people from the outside. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. That's right. It's very quiet. And very dark. Once nighttime comes, it's only the stars that you'll see and going to be very quiet at night as well. No electricity. 
None of the wonderful things that we have. And you can think in the Middle Ages, I mean, soap is just being invented. Glasses are just being invented. We can forget about, for the most part, indoor plumbing and all of the modern conveniences that we have. Life is very hard, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, so a cathedral in the middle. And you can still visit some of these cathedrals today in Europe. And that's what we tend to associate with the Middle Ages. But even though that is the case, the average person didn't actually go to cathedrals very often at that time period. They were there, and they were power structures. And for the most part, the cathedrals were places of pilgrimage where people could travel from one area to another, and they could come, and they have all of these wonderful relics associated with this church, and it shows the wealth of the archbishop. But the average Christians, they would go to churches that would not be as beautiful, that haven't lasted time because they're made out of wood, other structures like that. Anything else real quickly before we move on that you see from this picture? There's a river. A lot of cities are built on rivers because we don't have transportation like we do now. Back then, the the surest way of transportation was by boat, and so you have a lot of these medieval cities that would be built along the river. They can be transporting all their goods. Isn't it interesting that a lot of their architecture includes cones, cone-shaped items Yeah, absolutely. And that's a form of of architecture. Gothic architecture is kind of moving in that direction. Yeah, so this right here looks like maybe it's either being constructed or maybe it was burnt down. So a lot of buildings throughout Europe had to constantly be rebuilt because of fires, because of earthquakes, other damage that takes place. So in general... This is a good snapshot of the type of life we can imagine for people living in the year 1500. It's a very large city, actually, by those standards. If we go back 500 years ago, there's only a few cities in Europe that have a population of even 100,000. So think of Paris today of several millions of people. It's sprawling out. Back then, just 500 years ago, maybe 100,000 people lived there. So it's very much a smaller version of what we think of when we go to these places today. And also, take note of, you have the village right in the middle here, but outside, all around you, you have land. And throughout the Middle Ages, it's easier to think of Europe as a series of forests than it is of cities. So it's for the first time that cities are coming into existence in the 11, 12, 13, 1400s. Before then, everyone probably 80-90% of the population lives in what we call the countryside. And that completely changes everything that we think about religion, as we think about the church. Imagine if you are living in a village of 100 people or 50 people, and every once in a while, maybe a couple of times a year, maybe less, you go to a larger city. How does that impact your theology? How does that impact the religion that you practice? It absolutely does. And so if we spent more time on this, we could really ferret out a lot of the ways that we can see how religion is going to be shaped, how it's going to, in many ways, control how people understand things. 
With something like this, we can see that there's not going to be as much communication, or at least communication is going to be slow from one village to another. And so ideas that are coming in are not going to be immediately received. It's going to be a much more conservative environment. So let me start with a quotation here. I have a few quotes, and I'll make sure to read them. I know not everyone can see them, and that's okay. And I'd be happy to give the notes to anyone. I can give the notes to Matthew or whomever if, if you'd like to see these. So I want to think about the idea right now of one society for the year 1500. And here's the quotation. Any approach which begins with a rigid and fundamentally modern Distinction between the religious and the secular is unlikely to get us very far. For most people, daily life was heavily sacralized and religion was thoroughly secularized. It is extremely difficult to strain off quote-unquote religion from separate notions of social, political, or economic behavior and motivation. And I want to start with this quote because it's so difficult for us to go back in time and to think the way that we think today, where you can pull religion from society, you can pull politics from society, you can pull economics from society. When we're talking about the Middle Ages, we're talking about all of the time period in which the Reformation took place. This is an area which everything was interconnected. Religion, politics, economics, everything was one. It was one unit. And you couldn't pull one part from another. And so when we're talking about daily life, I like how he has it's heavily sacralized. So that is, the sacred is very much a part of everyday living. And then when you talk about the quote-unquote religion, it's thoroughly secularized. And so if you were to go back in time 500 years ago and were to talk with someone about their faith in private terms they really wouldn't understand exactly what you're talking about. To them, the whole life is a Christian life. There are no real differences among people. Yeah, there's some slight differences. There are some different people groups. But for the most part, if you live in a village, everyone is Christian. And there's no concept of someone not being a Christian unless they are Jewish or they are a heretic of some kind. So you're all one. You're all living in the same space. You're sharing that with each other. Your family is Christian. Your friends are Christian. And you don't even really think in those terms because it's just what it means to be of this village. I live in this village. This is who I am. I am in this world. You don't have missions in the same way that we do. You don't proselytize people in the same way that we do in this modern world. So everyone is in the same lot together. It's just one society. So what I want to spend the next few minutes looking at are some features of late medieval life. And again, when I say late medieval life or the late Middle Ages, I'm talking about the 13, 14, 1500s to get us to this general time period of around 1500. Hard life, communal life, Catholic life, and reforming life. First part here with the hard aspects of living. I'm just going to say it like this. You would not want to be living in the Middle Ages. You want to thank your lucky stars that you live today in the 21st century. It was a very, very difficult life. Now, of course, 
They did not understand this in the same way because they had no way to measure their lives against other time periods as we can today. And they didn't know exactly what's going on in the world today. It's not very helpful in a lot of ways when I wake up in the morning and I can read the world news and hear about all of these things that are taking place across the world. They couldn't do that, but still at the same time, there are ongoing social crises. So one is overpopulation due to urbanization. And so, as I mentioned, it's only really in the 1100s and 1200s and 1300s that people begin moving into what we call cities. Everyone before then lived out in the countryside. And there's a lot of reasons why they moved into cities, but you can imagine people are now moving into cities and you have overpopulation. You have mass, quote-unquote, unemployment. So people are moving into cities. They also don't have the same accountability they had before. When you live in a small village, you can't do whatever you want to do because everybody knows who you are. It's very small. So just two weeks ago, being in... Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived. Several thousand people living there. He moves from Nazareth. Nazareth only has maybe 200 people living in this village. So you can understand why Jesus wants to leave this very small area. He goes into a place that's just a little bit larger, but still there's many other larger cities. When you're living in a small village, everybody knows who you are. They know your story. You can't outsmart them. They're always there, and that controls your behavior. When you move into a city, you lose that accountability. And so now no one knows who you are, and you have more freedom. You have ability to read if you can read, or at least you can absorb some of the new ideas. You can be much more progressive than if you're going to be in an inherently conservative place like a small village. So urbanization, the universities coming to existence in cities, teachers are coming in, and they're bringing these very strange ideas these ideas that don't really match very well what other forms of historic Christianity are teaching, and that's going to be important, as well as many other things that we could talk about with urbanization. The economy is changing, moving into more of a market economy, more of a commercialized economy as people are clustering around together in these cities, and there's new forms of commerce that are taking place. But of course, we're still talking about the vast majority of people who live in what we might call abject poverty. And unfortunately, we're the majority of the people, and so we're represented by 90 to 95% of the people who are just making it, barely. You don't have insurance like we have. There are no retirement communities. There are no golden parachutes. There's nothing out there that's going to guarantee that you're going to have food the next week or the next month, that you're going to have someone to be able to take care of you. It's a very precarious existence. Famine and pollution always taking place. Now, of course, here we have all of these factories. We can get our food. We can go to the supermarket. There's endless varieties of things that we can purchase and eat. But in the Middle Ages, you have to get your food from one source, from the earth. And if you have a bad year, that means lots of people die. You have a couple of bad years, thousands of people are dying. The plague, which really culminates in the 1300s, about half of Europe's population dies. That's right. Half of Europe's population is going to die. And we have some gripping stories from people who write about 
what happens in these villages. Sometimes maybe only a few people. You might have 300 people. Only 15 people might live. And it's all over a very short amount of time. And they talk about what happens. This is day one. They start having these little black dots on their bodies and their lymph nodes. And then eventually they start coughing up blood. And then three days later, they're dead. And not just the people, but the animals are dying. Everything around is dying. And of course, in this type of society, you have a theology in place and you're looking back to God and saying, why is this happening? What are you trying to do? We have to find someone to blame for this. STDs enter at this time. And the plague, by the way, culminating in the 1300s, but it continues on for hundreds of years. So all of the, the, the reformers, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, all of these people, they would have had real experiences with the plague because the plague will go into an area and a lot of times they would have to, those who have means, and that's another thing to be considering, is the, the theologians that we're going to be talking about, like Zwingli and Calvin and Luther, they had means. They were not poor people. And so a plague comes in, they're actually able to move and go outside in the countryside for three months or six months, and they can come back and everything has gotten better for them. The Inquisition is ongoing for hundreds of years. This is mostly in Spain and Portugal, but we see it as well in other areas. A whole series of wars, I just give one, the Hundred Years' War, largely between England and France. And then the bottom to here, the Avignon Papacy, the Great Schism. And I'll just say it like this, the Catholic Church, in terms of its leadership, was an absolute mess in the 1300s and 1400s, in particular, where the King of France is able to make the papacy move from the papal states in Italy into France, and their control the whole infrastructure of the papacy. And then eventually, the papacy comes back into Italy in 1378. That doesn't really solve that much because now there's a whole series of popes. So there are two popes, sometimes three popes, even more. And depending on which pope you think is the true pope, then your nation aligns with that person. So you've got England aligning with this type of papacy, and you've got France aligning with this other, and it is a whole absolute mess. Those are just some of the social crises going on. And now I want to talk more specifically about people like you and people like me. In case you were thinking, I actually think the Middle Ages would be a great place to live. Average life expectancy was barely 30 which is the same as it was during the Roman Empire. So 1,500 years later, it's still an average life expectancy of around 30. A figure dragged sharply down, and this is one of the reasons why it was so low, by the heart-wrenching incidence of infant mortality. One in four children failed to make their first birthday. So 25% of the children did not make their first birthday. One in two died before their tenth. Surviving children were quite likely to come under the authority of a step-parent. Marriages were dissolved by death as frequently as they are today by divorce. And remarriage was common and expected. In a world without antibiotics or reliably effective sanitation, influenza, smallpox, typhoid, dysentery, were regular and lethal. 
Now, there is a flip side to a certain extent. There is immunity built up over these, and this is going to play a part in the Americas when Europeans come here in the late 1400s and 1500s. They devastate local populations because they had built up immunity to these diseases, whereas the people that they encountered did not. And in some instances, almost 100% of the local community died just by shaking the hand of someone like me or being in the same space with them. But you see, this is a hard life. In many ways, if you understand what the Middle Ages is like, the year 1500, you go to developing countries today, and it really is the same situation. I know that you can't see these and, and read these, but here is a woodcut from the 1500s, and it shows what life was like for typical people like you and me. Our lives revolved around the seasons, and they revolved around farming, plowing. So here, February is the time that a man is at the fireplace. There's really not much to do in February other than to try to stay warm and hope that you have enough food and stock from the winter to be able to eat. In March, you are plowing. In April, you're pruning. In June, you have a man who is hoeing the ground. July, person is mowing. September, making wine, so it's now the, the harvest from the grapes. And then December, we are sowing our seeds that's going to last us for the following year. November, a man is, is chopping wood to stay warm. And so you get the cycle of life that takes place. And that's how you can think of the majority of people are living according to this cycle of life as they have lived for all of humankind. Continuing on from more of a hard life to what I'm calling a communal life. Another way we could describe it is a parish life. Parishes common in certain traditions, not as much in evangelical Protestant churches. But we think of parish life mostly associating with the Church of England, going into England if you've ever visited England, and you can still visit lots of these beautiful parishes there, to these old historic communities. Here's a quotation. Religious life for medieval Christians was predominantly a communal experience. And this is in contrast to our own experience today. We have primarily individual experiences. We're a highly individualistic society. And in fact, not just that, but we are, in my opinion, the most individualistic society that has ever existed. And we forget how much this shapes everything we do, everything we think about. Just in the sense of when we move out of the house after college. Well, why would we just presuppose that we have to move out of the house after high school. When you turn 18, why would you move out of the house? That is opposed to almost all of human history. Why would you, when you get married, have to form your own house? Why wouldn't you live with your parents? Why wouldn't you continue to live with your grandparents? Why do you move to a house and you have to buy your own lawnmower? Why can't you share a lawnmower with the person next to you or a whole community? Why do you have your own basketball set? Why, why do you do all of these things by yourselves? Well, because we are the most individualistic society that's ever existed. So when it comes to the religious life, we think about, well, my relationship with God, that's paramount. Well, why wouldn't we think that this person's relationship with God has more to teach me than my own relationship with God? 
Why wouldn't we rely more on the church community to tell us this is what we are to believe and to think as opposed to thinking that from myself? Why do I think I'm so smart or so religious or so holy? Well, because we're the most individualistic society that's ever existed. So this impacts everything we do in religion, everything we do in church life. This is very different from life in the year 1500, and certainly life well before that. It's predominantly a communal experience. They practice their faith in the context of a parish. And if you're not familiar with the parish, it's uh, effectively you live in a village and you have a church that you are assigned, that is the, the local church. And that is where you live your religious life. You go to that church, and really only that church, and that's the only church that you'll ever go to. I won't ask you to raise your hands and say, how many of you have been part of more than one church in your life? Because I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be. And that also, you see how much that shapes us is that we can even hear within 30 minutes, you know how many different churches that we could find? You have a bad relationship here, something happens, you don't like the teaching, you don't like what's going on, you can go to another church just like that. Heck, you... The, this, this is what, the next service, you can go find another church, right? You're already going to be able to find another church and you're going to be able to fit in, even if this church excommunicates you because you're a horrible person. You can just go across the street and find a church that they'll welcome you with open arms and don't care about that you were excommunicated because you're a horrible person. Until six months later, they'd get rid of you and then you can go to another place or whatever the case may be. But you see, we have all of these options, endless options. Go to the supermarket and you've got 65 different forms of cereal. There's one option when it comes to this time period. You've got one church, you've got one community, you can't leave them. You're stuck with them. So you think you're stuck with your family, you're stuck with your neighbors, you're stuck with the people that you work with, you're stuck with all the people at church. The only prayer you have is that they're going to die soon. That's it. Where one lived determined what parish one belonged to, and within its boundaries, a medieval Christian learned his or her creed, received moral instruction and correction, received the sacraments, paid taxes, which were called tithes, to support the church. Communal life was both supportive and coercive. And so I mentioned this aspect of coercive. I use a different word from that. But there are benefits of a communal life. One of the great benefits is a lot of people need accountability. And so this is what it provides in the term that is used here. She's using the term coercive. But this is the communal life. You're learning Christianity through this means. You don't have other alternatives. The priest may be the priest for 45 years until he dies. And of course, it's always a man. There's no women priests at this time. And so you just have to live it out. So you think, I really don't like the pastor very much. Well, you probably won't like this priest, but he's going to be there for the long haul. Or maybe he'll die of some type of disease. Maybe he'll get typhoid and you can be lucky. And then a new person would come in, whatever the case may be. But this is what you're stuck with. You have no options in life. You just work all day. You receive very little instruction. At this time in the 1500s, you know, think of the year 1500 or so, 
If we're in England, yeah, a lot of the priests are going to be educated, but they're educated with the classics. They don't really have any preparation in pastoral care, uh, knowing exactly how to interact with people when they're dying. They know the, the creeds, and they know certain teachings. They know last rites. They know what they're supposed to do from a, a religious standpoint. But they don't have any training, as pastors do today, in interacting with people in that way. So it's a parish life. It's a communal life. And so here's some things you can think of as a Christian. This is what you have. Required baptism. So it is required when a child is born that that child would be baptized. I'm fully aware I'm in a Baptist church, and Baptists really like to make their own decision of when they're going to be baptized. Well, there's no such option 500 years ago. And in fact, most of the people that are going to be talked about in the next few weeks, when it comes to Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli, they were 100% behind the notion that, of course, you have to baptize your babies. So there are no unbaptized people. There's no second baptism that we call creedal baptism. There is infant baptism. That is the rule of the land. And in fact, it's a capital crime not to have your child baptized, which will be understood a little later in a few weeks when the Anabaptists are talking about why they encounter so much opposition. For many reasons, but one reason is because they refuse to baptize their children as infants. Annual confession. So from as early as the year 1215, there was a council that said that, quote-unquote, all Christians should have annual confession. That is, that you have to go to a priest, you have to be contrite for your sins, you have to confess them, and you'll have some type of consequence to that, but you have a confession. And then semi-regular communion. It's not accurate to think that Christians are going to a cathedral, even church every Sunday, and they're having communion, which is the reason why you're there, which is different from Protestant churches. People go to Protestant churches for a sermon. People go to Catholic churches for Eucharist. And it's a fundamental distinction. In terms of what churches look like, you know, there's no chairs in churches. That's a very modern addition. That's something that happens right around the Middle Ages because people begin preaching for the first time. Before then, you go to a service, the priest might deliver a homily, but more often than not, probably wouldn't say anything necessarily other than there would be the readings and the set prayers, but there would not be anything that we think of in terms of a sermon. People are standing the whole time because there are no chairs. And if you go to some of these wonderful cathedrals in Europe today, they're kind to put chairs, folding chairs. They're not very comfortable chairs, but they're not pews as we think about them. That is very much a recent addition in Christianity to have pews. So people are standing. These churches are very big. They're cavernous. People are having conversations pretty much like they do today. They're talking while the pastor or the the priest might be saying something. They weren't drinking coffee. Like, like we like to do, but you have babies who are crying, you have people who are gossiping, you have people who are trying to make deals, they're also just trying to get latest information on what's happening around the world for them, just around the village, and they're doing this all during the service. Required tithing in the form of taxes, so whether you like it or not, part of what you make is going to this parish system, Occasional sermons, and we should think the sermons are coming less from priests and more from new orders like Franciscans and Dominicans and so forth. And then here's the kicker. 
It's so for easy for us to open our Bibles, and Matthew was talking about all these wonderful books that are going to be here that you can read, including some of my books. But the average person, like us, we could not read. Around 95% of the population could not read. Still as late as 500 years ago. So let that sink in. I'm going to venture a guess, reading is a huge part of your religious life. It's a huge part of your Christian life. Just think, if you live like most Christians around the world today, certainly most Christians in history, you could not read. Just, I want you to think about that this upcoming week. If you can't read, that's a total game changer. You can't open up the Bible and get one word out of it. You can't open up any devotional literature and get one word out of it. You're getting 100% of everything you believe and think from other people or whatever crazy feelings you have going inside of you and thinking your own spiritual encounters. That's it. You can't measure it against any other written document. Just whatever is taught you, that is essentially what you're going to believe. So we're the vast majority. There's no use having a Bible. Even if we did have a Bible, we, we couldn't read it, but most people couldn't afford it anyway. Venerations of saints, especially Mary is paramount. Prayers to saints as well. And I, Protestants still have a, I think, a fundamental... Uh, we have a misunderstanding of what Catholics are doing in the past as well as today when praying to saints, but we probably don't have time to talk about that. Focus on images, statues, pictures, crucifixes, pilgrimages and relics. So stuff, that is the core of your faith, of your theology, are material objects, which makes perfect sense. That's the way it's always been. But these images, these statues, these pictures, these are really telling you what the Christian life is about. It's showing you what the Christian life is about. There are seats that are coming available, but those are for the rich people. And there's this ongoing fear of death and punishment for sins, which will be more important than I'll talk about next week. I want to mention the sacraments because the sacraments were the lifelines of all Christians for all time. Until this dude comes along in 1520, named Martin Luther, and he has the audacity to slice the seven sacraments into two. And we're part of a communion here that has two as well. A lot of places call them something different instead of uh, a sacrament. They would have uh, different terms for them. But the seven sacraments are what gives life in Catholic Christianity, and that, of course, is out of which Protestantism comes. So, real quickly, I'm going to go over these. We have baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, orders, marriage, and anointing. And I'm going to read a quote. I know that you won't be able to read that, but that's fine. You can just listen along. When we look at the seven traditional sacraments of the church, it becomes clear that they are closely aligned to the journey of a life. They are rites of passage, beginning with birth, extending through one's lifetime, and ending with death. So we start with baptism. This is why a child is baptized, because baptism actually brings salvation. 
To be an evangelical means to actually disagree with that. Evangelicals are the people who say, you can be baptized, you can have the sacraments all day, you can have an IV put up of sacraments, but what really counts is you have to have faith, you have to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. No, that's something that is much more recent. We have to understand that Christians always understood baptism to be that which imparts salvation. So there is a fundamental process that takes place that is tested and approved, and this is where salvation comes from. That's why infants are baptized, because it begins on the salvation process. It removes original sin, and it removes one's personal sin. Then we have confirmation, which is traditionally when the bishop comes and he prays over the person, and this is when the Holy Spirit comes into that person's life. And they're very much following the book of Acts. You can read along the book of Acts, how you have the apostles, you need Peter there to baptize someone like Cornelius, and then you also need Peter or Paul or someone to impart the Holy Spirit on them by laying hands on. And so the Catholic Church, as well as the, as the Orthodox Church, they're both following the same playbook here. The Eucharist is where you're actually receiving the very body and blood of Christ. And so it was a piece of bread, it was a glass of wine. Now it's actually Christ's blood, and it's now Christ's body. And you consume those, and this is how you participate in the divine life. Then you have penance, you have forgiveness of sins, and you have the different C's here. Contrition, you feel really bad about your sin. Confession, you admit your sin to the priest. Then you have the penance, and so this is the consequence. The priest will say, you need to do this in response to that. And then absolution. The priest, not by his own authority, but by the authority of Jesus Christ, remits the sin, forgives the sin of the person. Then you have orders, which we can kind of skip over. Marriage is actually a sacrament. And the last one, anointing here. Special forms of anointing. The last one maybe being the most important, what's last rites. And so you're preparing person for death. Here's a little visual. You start the Christian life as an infant. You're baptized. That is when you, quote-unquote, become saved, when you were baptized. And then you'll have confirmation, and this is when the Holy Spirit is imparted on you by the bishop, later probably just the priest. Then you have the Eucharist. And throughout the Middle Ages, they actually did not give you the wine and the bread. That was only reserved for the priest what you got was one or the other. Oftentimes, they would just get the bread. And this occurred for hundreds of years. Penance, when you confess, then you have more Eucharist, then you're at the point of death, you have anointing, and then you have purgatory, which is a long period of time where it's not a bad place, it's just a place where you have to go to exhaust the sin that's still lingering around your person And then, finally, you have the beatific vision where you're able to be in the presence of Christ. So that is the Catholic life. That is Christianity for the first 500 years for basically all Christians. Quotation about baptism. From the start of Christianity, the rite of baptismal washing and initiation was understood to be one process of justification and sanctification in which The tripersonal God remits sin and communicates new life. And here I put the quotation that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And all of this talking about baptism. And so the Catholic Church has 
their understanding based on passages like this, but the whole thing takes place with baptism. This was the view of the early church, and still, of course, the view of the Catholic and Orthodox churches. And then here with the Eucharist, this is not just a remembering, which is how a lot of Protestants think of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is about us remembering what Christ did for us. No, for the Catholic Church, it is a reliving of what happened. The Church from its earliest centuries began to understand the Eucharistic liturgy as a sacrificial rite, which made present the one sacrifice of Christ. And so you are bringing to mind, literally reliving, the cross again. And this is when you are partaking of the divine nature, which is Christ. Kind of, kind of skip over the sacred life. When we think about the Christian life in the, 15, the year 1500, besides the sacraments, we also have the church calendar. And the church calendar is the way that you relive the life of Christ. So Advent is when this begins and you're reliving Jesus' birth all over again. Lasts about a month. Then you go into ordinary time focusing on Jesus' earthly ministry. Then we have Lent, which is this 40 days from Ash Wednesday all the way to Sunday with the, the holy three days of Holy Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, what we call Easter. And then you have more ordinary time from Pentecost all the way to Advent, focusing on God's kingdom. But this shapes every aspect of church. When you go to church, you have readings associated with the church calendar, the specific passages, the specific prayers, the colors. Everything that you do is reliving Jesus' life. Kind of skip over that. And I want to take us to the last part here. It's also not just a hard life, not just a communal life, not just a Catholic life, but also the last point here, it's a reforming life. And so here's the thing that we're going to have to keep in mind. As much as we like Martin Luther, and I'm a big fan of Martin Luther in a lot of ways, I personally don't think he really said anything new. He didn't do anything new. He didn't say anything new. And this is something you can be thinking about. I like to describe him as he is the kernel that popped. And when he popped, everything went in a new direction. But it wasn't because he was the only kernel. There were lots of other kernels well before his time, but they just didn't pop in the same way. I'm going to skip over that part. I'm just going to take us to this. And I know you certainly can't read this. You don't have to, okay? Just wanted to put some things on the board for us. And what these are, are essentially reform movements that are taking place for hundreds of years before Martin Luther ever comes around. And they go by lots of different names. I'm not going to mention all of their names because they're, they're technical terms and I'd have to unpack what they're trying to get at. But for all of them, they are presenting reform from within the Catholic Church. And here's the thing that most Protestants never get. The Catholic Church is always reforming itself. It always has been reforming itself. It has a mechanism inherent within itself to reform itself. And it is always reforming itself. Even this day, there are reforms taking place within the Catholic Church. Protestants think that they have one way, and this is the way you do it, and it's always been the same. Not at all. The Catholic Church has been evolving from the beginning, and it's going to continue to evolve. Now it evolves very slowly, but it still evolves. And all of these 
that take place here are within the Catholic Church. I have seven or eight different reform movements. These are all within the Catholic Church. None of them are from outside the Catholic Church. When it comes to Martin Luther, that's reform from within the Catholic Church and all of the other people before him and even afterward. I just want to look at a couple of examples of people, and these are somewhat well-known. There are many other lesser-known stories, but I'll just give two of them. One is Jan Hus here. So Jan Hus is uh, a Czech, and he is living in the late 1300s and dies in 1415, actually killed in 1415. But Jan Hus here is appearing at what's called the Council of Constance on the border of the Czech Republic and Germany. And there he is brought up on suspicion of having some very progressive teachings. Well, what is he teaching? He's teaching things that Martin Luther eventually is going to teach as well. And in fact, they don't initiate with him. He doesn't really present any new ideas. It's just they come under attack under his specific time period. So, he is influenced by a guy named John Wycliffe, who is influenced by other people before his time. He rejects the view of the Eucharist that Catholics hold to, papal supremacy that the Pope is the all-knowing leader, that's not a good description, the Latin-only Bible, Latin-only preaching, clerical celibacy. I didn't mention this, so even if you could read, you're the 5% of the population, but when you go to church, the service is actually not in the language that you speak. It's in Latin. At this time period, nobody speaks Latin. It's a dead language, other than in the university. So when you go to college, that's always in Latin. But other than that, no one speaks Latin. But you go to church, and that is the language that's spoken. So it would be like going to church, and everything is in Arabic. Okay? Well, I don't have much help in what's actually being spoken. So think about that, and how that would shape you. I'm going to kind of skip over some of these things. Uh, much more to be said, though, about the, this movement that Jan Hus starts, but Martin Luther is going to appeal to him a hundred years afterward, and as I mentioned, Jan Hus is doing the same types of things that eventually Martin Luther will do. Another very quick moment is humanism, and humanism really starts the Reformation as we think about it. All of the features are in place, people focusing on text and not as much on tradition, focusing on the original languages, focusing on the Bible and the Bible alone and things like that. And just maybe uh, two or three more minutes and then we'll, we'll end. But to give you a sense in which even the Bible, as we think about it, of course we couldn't read and there's no reason why there should be a lot of Bibles available. If 5% of the population can read, why would we have Bibles in every church? Well, we wouldn't. So you can think this is what happens in 1368 that is showing that 2% of all churches in England possessed a full Bible. Right? So that's 1368. 1368. 2% of all churches having a complete Bible. So any Bibles that existed would be kind of like this right here. So this is my Latin Bible. And you see it's very small. This is a type of Bible that someone, if they had it, they'd have to be a scholar, would actually have. And it wouldn't be a full Bible. These are extremely rare. And I'm just going to skip over this, but this is saying that 
a full Bible only comes into existence during the Middle Ages anyway. So there's no such thing as a person like ourselves owning a Bible in the Middle Ages. It was unheard of. Lots of reasons why. Cost prohibitive, extremely expensive, low literacy, and we don't have the technology. And of course, we have to recognize too, before the Gutenberg Bible in the 1450s, every Bible that has ever existed was written by hand. Did you know that? Every Bible. That means it was full of errors. Because if I give you a piece of paper to copy something down, you will make a mistake. Guaranteed. All of us will make mistakes. And so... We're going through this. This is the Bible that people have access to, if they have access to it at all. It's all written by hand before the Gutenberg Bible, 1450s. And not only this, and this will be one of the last points that I'll make, is we're going to be introduced to Martin Luther more next week. And 1517 is a very important year. This is why it's 2017 and celebrating this series. But it's only one year before Luther's 95 Theses that the first complete Greek New Testament has ever been assembled before. So just let that sink in. There is no critical edition, there is no complete edition of the Bible as it was actually written until 1516. So it's not surprising that Martin Luther is one of the people who buys this immediately, and he comes to some very interesting conclusions within a year after that. And so we'll end with this. When people finally get the Bible, all hell breaks loose. The cat now is out of the bag. So one way early modern Europeans differed from their medieval predecessors was in the sheer numbers of those who felt compelled and able to judge for themselves what God's true teaching was and then to articulate that for anyone they could persuade to listen. So if you let that sink in, everything is going to be different now. When people don't have access to a Bible, when they can't read the Bible, nothing that they can say other than they have some private revelations. But most people are not going to listen to just these private revelations. But when people now get the Bible for themselves, it's not surprising that we go from one denomination, as it were, to today, even in the Protestant world, we have 50,000 Protestant denominations. 50,000. That's just in Protestantism. Every day, two more denominations coming to existence. Why? Well, lots of reasons, but the main reason is because people have the Bible, they can read the Bible, and they feel empowered and even compelled to read it for themselves, to think for themselves, and to come up with whatever crazy ideas that they get from that. Amen? You'll learn my sense of humor by next week, hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) So, we're just going to end there. And I know, I think, our time is officially up. Is that correct? But, oh. I'll be around if anyone wants to talk or have any questions, make any comments. Next week, I'll make sure to have more time for that. So thank you for coming, and I hope that you'll come back next week for Martin Luther. It's been great being with you.